0: Well please have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 2 and I hope to show you this morning that in this narrative which is probably seldom preached on there are some extremely poignant lessons for us to discover. And you might wonder why is this particular part of God's Word not preached on that often? Well it's a part of the story of Christ's birth that isn't always mentioned at Christmas time. Sometimes it is, but generally you'll probably find that Bible readings from Matthew's Gospel in carol services and things like that probably only ever get as far as verse 12 of chapter 2. They don't always continue through to this part of the story. And unless you're actually preaching systematically through Uh, the gospel according to Matthew, as we are at the moment, it's probably not a passage that many many preachers would find themselves choosing on an ad hoc basis. Uh, They might refer to it in terms of drawing attention to the prophecies that are mentioned here as being fulfilled, Uh, but not often would they take this whole passage as a text for a sermon. Of course that's one of the reasons why expository preaching through entire books of the Bible is so important. I once heard someone say that you shouldn't preach on a passage in the Bible just because it's there. Seems to me though that if every part of the Bible is the inspired word of God, which it is, then that very fact alone means that there is a very good reason to preach any passage from the Bible. And it's certainly a reason not to ignore it. Well, anyway, this is where we are this morning as we're making our way through the, the opening sections of this Gospel. And so please have that passage open in front of you. And let's consider these verses as they begin with Joseph and Mary taking the infant Jesus and faithfully fleeing. That's what we see in verses 13 to 15. They are faithfully fleeing. As soon as the wise men have departed, almost immediately, perhaps uh, maybe that very same night, Joseph receives another visitation from God's angel. Now Bethlehem is only five or six miles from Jerusalem. And Herod is waiting for those eastern visitors to come back to him and to tell him where exactly this baby is who has been born. Herod's probably not expecting that to take too long. The return journey could easily be done in a single day. How much leeway is he likely to give them while he waits, especially in the mood that he's in? Two days? maybe three at the most well anyway it probably wasn't very long and Herod is getting suspicious and we discover here that God knows all about the scheming of men against himself men who scheme against God and God's ways and God's truth and especially scheming against anything concerning the gospel of his son the Lord Jesus Christ And against those who would follow him and who would preach that gospel. We're reminded here that nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Nothing escapes his knowledge and his wisdom. And we see that he will completely confound Herod's desire to destroy Christ. To be rid of this baby king. God is not one step behind Trying to catch up. He's never been, he never will be in that position. God knows and controls the whole story from beginning to end, He is sovereign over it all. Such an important lesson for us here, such an encouraging lesson for us here. We must never speak or pray in any way that gives the impression that we think that everything is out of control. And that it just cannot be right for things to be heading in that direction or to be turning out that way. And Now that's not to say that we just lie back in total complacency in every situation because whatever will be, will be. That's not to say that we shouldn't ever take any kind of stand against the wickedness of this world or to be praying against it. But what we should never permit ourselves to think Or to say, is that this thing or that thing cannot possibly be something which God would permit. Or that God would allow to happen to people like us. This is a Christian country after all. And look at how it's going to the dogs. Here in the UK, we have known considerable spiritual blessings over several centuries That is most certainly true. By God's grace, there has been an unusual Christian influence within our nation. Across those centuries, the likes of which many nations have never known. But this has never been a Christian country. Not really. Those of us who are Christian believers, we look around at the state our nation is in. We see all kinds of wickedness emerging and you know none of those vices which we see coming out all around us uh, things that have come out in recent years none of these things you know are new to these shores they are now more pervasive more prolific more diverse more public than they've ever been in the past But don't kid yourself into thinking that they were never here 40, 50, 60 years ago. Those things have been here all along. And we must not behave as if God's plan for this nation has somehow been snatched out of God's hands and he's powerless to respond. Don't forget that sometimes, as we'll discover very soon in our series in Romans, sometimes... God gives people over to the sinful choices that they've made. He abandons them to their sin and allows it to escalate. And we mustn't forget that that sometimes is what God does, but he's every much as bit, every bit as much in charge when that happens. It should grieve us to see how sin is flourishing in our nation. But it ought not to surprise us to see sinners behaving like the sinners that they are. Jesus, as he grows up and begins his ministry, he will be deeply grieved over the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day in Israel. And that comes across very powerfully in Matthew's Gospel. But he wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't caught unawares by it. He knew them only too well. They were of their father, the devil. And the angel comes to Joseph. Joseph, he says, there's great wickedness in this world. And that wickedness, right now, in the form of Herod, is waging war against this child. Flee to safety in Egypt. There's still great wickedness in this world. And it's still waging war against Christ and His truth and His gospel and His people and His church. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. And of course, you'll face difficulties of every sort just through all of the routine trials of life as well. But this world has always been against God and His truth and His ways. What are we to do about it? What are we to do in the face of it? Well, I want to suggest that actually Joseph is a very good example to us here. He simply heeds God's word and obeys it. God makes clear to Joseph what he is to do and he immediately does it. That same night, they get up and go. The messages come in a dream. And while it's still dark, they set off for Egypt, not a moment to lose. A place of refuge has been identified and they are to flee. Well, how do we translate that into our own present day situation? Well, you have in front of you God's word, the Bible. In it, you will find all that you need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, you you might not find an instruction as specific as the one that Joseph received for his circumstance from that angel. But you will find there all of the truths and commandments and precepts and principles which God has made known to you and for you. You'll find promises and warnings and exhortations And as you prayerfully delve into God's word and allow God's word to delve into you, by God's spirit, he will instruct you and equip you and guide you and direct you in the way you should go. As surely as God knew all about Herod and his wicked heart and his obnoxious schemes, God knows all about your situation, all about your circumstances and by his word and in answer to your prayers, he will give you a settled conscience as to the way you should go, the way you should respond and even before you have asked him, he is at work in his world for your good. In many ways, the main point here is the big picture. God already knows Herod's heart. He already knows what Herod's response is going to be. And God has already prompted Joseph, even before Herod has made up his own mind and issued his orders, and he tells Joseph what he's to do. And on this occasion, it is simply to flee to a designated place of safety. Sometimes that is what God supplies. A a place to which we may flee for refuge, for safety. At other times, what God requires of us is to stand firm. Even if it leads to the lion's den or the fiery furnace. Like it did for Daniel and his friends in Babylon. But was not God with them even there? For those godly young men. We learn a lot from God's dealing with Joseph here. As this great grave opposition is ready to bear down on them. Egypt was not too far away. Egypt we know at that time had a sizable Jewish community. And probably amongst them, Joseph and Mary would have found refuge and a welcome. And, of course, there's a prophecy to be fulfilled. And God needs to get them to Egypt by some means. It's fascinating to me that God will use the threat of death to get them into Egypt in order that he can get get them back out again and bring them as the prophecy states. Even that threat of death has a purpose in God's plan. It's really important that we allow God's word to kind of retune our minds and our understanding so that we begin in increasing measure to, to think things through in a biblical way and to see how God is at work in his world and all the different kinds of things that God will use but it is God who is behind these things everything difficult painful sorrowful that will ever come against you the lord knows it all even now and even now is preparing the path that will lead you to it that will lead you through it and in his will and purpose And in his time, lead you out the far side. Just as he's doing here with Joseph. And remember that affliction and opposition and persecution is the way of Christ's church. This is part of our calling. Paul and the Apostle Peter speak of these things quite frequently. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Christ is but an, a tiny infant who probably has not yet even spoken his first word, and already men are out to kill him. Would you grumble and complain that life is not as easy as you think it should be for a Christian in the UK? And that this world is not accommodating Christians as you would like it to. And would you forget that even when Christ was still a babe in arms, men were out to take his life. Don't bemoan the fact that the world seems to be against you. The apostles exhort you to rejoice To rejoice in anticipation of that great revealing of Christ's power and majesty and authority. And Matthew takes his Jewish readers back to Hosea chapter 11. And he reminds them that all their Old Testament history consists of types and shadows. In this great expectation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he mentions this prophecy about coming out of Egypt. God had of course brought the whole nation out of Egypt. 1500 years later. uh, 1500 years earlier. uh, Under Moses. But now comes one far greater. Who will establish the kingdom of the son of his love. Here comes Israel's true deliverance. Here comes Israel's true deliverer out of Egypt. And as we consider all that it took for all of that to fall into place and for that to unfold, uh, we marvel at God's providence in all of these things. And he likewise is working out all of these things in our lives too needs to fill us with great assurance and comfort. But back in Bethlehem, uh, well, Herod the Great, who really is Herod the not-so-great, uh, he's not best pleased with what's gone on there because the, those wise men are nowhere to be seen. And so as he waits in Jerusalem, we have this awful uh, burst of outrage from Herod, and we see the we see him callously killing these infants. Now it probably was only a few days at most before Herod issues this most horrendous instruction. This this whole issue about this news that he's received from these wise men, you see, this won't be something that slipped to the back of his mind. That these men had arrived from the East so certain about what's happened and searching with such earnest. He's probably been on the edge of his seat the whole time. You can imagine him pacing up and down in the palace. Uh, waiting for these wise men to return. and Everyone else around him in the palace feeling like they're walking on eggshells, um, trying not to do or say the wrong thing as Herod waits for news. And of course, resorting to violence has become second nature to Herod. The human heart can become very calloused by sin. It can become hardened by sin and hardened to sin we can become desensitised to sin And, and as our own sinfulness sinks ever deeper into the mire of wickedness for someone like Herod the order to murder babies can be given frighteningly easily a few dead Jewish boys are nothing compared to this man's lust for power and dominance. He's a a savage thug of a man, unfeeling and uncaring for anyone but himself. You see, small sins left unchecked give birth to bigger sins And bigger sins left unchecked leave you able to issue instructions like Herod issued that day. We need to be really careful. The issue of the age of these infants who are to die is probably more of an indication of Herod's desperation to be rid of this child and to make sure that this very big net that he's put forth will catch him. And that's probably got more to do with it than being an indication of actually how old Jesus was when all of this happened. I mentioned last week that we know from other historical documents that King Herod died in the year 4 B.C., Uh, And the precise year of Christ's birth was miscalculated several centuries later by those who first established the BC AD calendar. And so we end up with Christ in reality being born quite a few years BC himself. But that's simply because of the mistake that was made by others later on. Now, in Luke chapter three, we're told that Jesus begins his public ministry at about the age of thirty, and that in that first year of ministry, he visited he visited Jerusalem for the Passover, and while he's there, Jesus makes reference to the fact that the temple in Jerusalem has been undergoing a rebuilding program that's been going on for forty six years. He mentions that in chapter twenty, uh, in verse twenty of John chapter two. So the temple's being undergoing this big reconstruction program for 46 years. And the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us that that building work began roughly at 19 B.C. So that would place a 30-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem in John chapter 2 at about the year A.D. 26 or 27 because of this error that was made when... First, all of these dates were being put together. Now, they are approximate dates, but only in the sense of give or take one or two years. They're fairly accurate. These dates are there or thereabouts. So, Jesus is very likely uh, within the first year of his life when all of these events concerning the wise men and Herod took place because we believe that Herod died very soon after these things. Jesus was certainly no more than two years of age when Herod died. So when Herod issues this decree that all the baby boys aged two and under is issued, it's not to suggest that Jesus probably was two years of age but actually, Jesus was probably with it still within his first year. Uh, rather, it's an indication that Herod simply wasn't taking any chances and was giving himself a wide margin for error. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? I, I admit how it is that God could allow such a thing which is... So closely connected to the Lord Jesus Christ that these babies in Bethlehem could be slaughtered by being put to the sword. Of course, you need to remember that the guilt for this crime is Herod's and cannot be ascribed to God. God didn't have Herod's arm twisted up his back, forcing him to issue this decree. Herod's own depraved heart and mind put those words into his own mouth. This is how much the world will hate Christ. And it's an awful thing. And Matthew refers this back to a verse found in the prophecy of Jeremiah at chapter 31. He talks about Rama, he talks about Rachel. Rama was a place five miles north of Jerusalem and it was located on what used to be the border between the two divided kingdoms of Israel towards the end of Old Testament history. And in that sense, Rama kind of represents all of Israel because it, it, it straddled both the 10 Northern tribes Of Israel from Judah in the south consisting of Judah and Benjamin Rachel was the wife of Jacob and she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin now when Israel divided into two it it did that following the the reign of King Solomon because of huge rivalry as to who should be the next king And two of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they would be the heads of two of the ten tribes who would be in that northern section, which retained the name Israel. Benjamin would be the head of his own tribe, along with Judah. And they were the two southern tribes of Judah after that split, so... Uh, those those family links from jacob actually became divided as israel separated and so and so they very much uh, stand to represent the divided nation of israel uh, The ten northern tribes of Israel were defeated by the Assyrians. Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And he then destroyed Jerusalem. And so both in Ramah, the place, and in Rachel with these offspring, you have this representative picture of the whole of Israel. And Rachel weeping over her children. Of course, in reality, it was her great-great-grandchildren many times over. But that's the picture of here, Rachel weeping over her children who have either been slaughtered by the Assyrians or taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And the whole nation, her whole family, her children, just gone. And yet, it's very significant that Matthew quotes that verse from that chapter because that same 31st chapter of Jeremiah is full of promise and hope. It speaks of God's love for Israel. It speaks of God gathering in his scattered people. Listen to some of the things that Jeremiah says. God speaking, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you again. I will build you and you shall be rebuilt for there shall be a day when the watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim. Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord, our God. Thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, "O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labours with child together. A great throng shall return there. The Lord has redeemed Jacob, ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they'll come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. They'll come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord. But your children shall come back to their own border. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, when I took them to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin. I will remember no more. Matthew's point to his Jewish readership. And to us is this. He drives us back to Jeremiah 31. Do you remember those promises? He says. Do you remember Jeremiah speaking of God's everlasting love? And of comfort and consolation for Israel. Do you remember that promised new covenant and the forgiveness of sins? Do you remember how all that stands in contrast to Rachel refusing to be comforted? It's all about to happen. That child taken to Egypt is the promised saviour. And he will soon return and he will bring about the fulfilment of everything in Jeremiah's prophecy. There will be comfort in him. You will find rest for your soul in him. Weeping eyes will be wiped dry by him. Because this is the promised one who's come. And then the narrative concludes with Joseph and Mary readily returning from Egypt. Readily returning from verse 19. Now Joseph and the child and his mother were probably not in Egypt for a long time. Herod died quite soon after the events of verse 16, and it was made clear to Joseph that it was safe to return. And by the way, just notice how Jesus is always mentioned before Mary, as Matthew talks about them. Whereas those who would idolise Mary usually put her name first, then that of Christ. Well, Matthew has it right. He always puts them the other way around. Well, Herod has a son, Archelaus. He's now the king, and he's a chip off the old block. in fact, Archelaus was so ruthless um, and Rome received so many complaints about him and they were so concerned about the civil unrest that could unfold because of him. uh, They eventually removed him from power and instead they put their own governors in place throughout Judea and Galilee. And of course, one such governor 30 years later would be a certain man by the name of Pilate. But Joseph knew of the reputation of Archelaus. And even though Herod was dead, um, probably Joseph was concerned that Archelaus might try to complete what his father had set out to do. God was very sympathetic to Joseph's fears. Now that's a help and encouragement, isn't it? He knows the fear that Joseph still has over the circumstance that they're in. And so God confirms to Joseph that they should keep on and they return northward to their hometown of Nazareth where it all began. The region of Galilee was a rather despised place. It was a place where Jews and Gentiles would mingle in a way that would horrify the elite in Jerusalem. And and this further emphasises the meekness and the humility that is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. To have returned to Bethlehem, to have been known as a citizen of the birthplace of King David, that would have been a noble thing. But Nazareth? The question would be asked... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew has set the scene for us. This baby born in Bethlehem has all the qualifications to be the promised Messiah. He has all of those qualifications because he is the promised Messiah. Even the wise men from the East knew that this was no ordinary baby. His life will be a life of humility, of simplicity. And once his public ministry begins, of never-ending opposition and reviling. Such sufferings and agonies so that you and I could never be in a position to complain about any hardship that we may have to endure for him. This world is a place of untold misery, symbolized by the slaughter of those infants in Bethlehem, Rachel weeping for her children who are no more. But one has come, who is able even to wipe away those tears, who is able to heal even hearts that are as broken as that, who can turn mourning into rejoicing, and who will demonstrate the everlasting love that God has towards His people, who will secure for us the forgiveness of our sins. To know Him, to love Him, to follow Him can be very costly. But Joseph's experience and example teaches us that by living in obedience to God's word, the almighty and the sovereign God will lead us and guide us the whole journey through. He knows. He knows. He knows all the things that we face. He knows about them even before we have to face them. And he's leading us and guiding us through. And even difficult circumstances. Hard to understand. Like the slaughter of those babies in Bethlehem. All of these things nevertheless. Even the wicked things that sinful people do. All are used by the Lord in his purposes. Jeremiah pictured Sinful Israel streaming back to the goodness of the Lord. There is none good like the Lord Jesus Christ is good. There is no goodness to compare with that salvation for sin. which, Which he has come into the world to provide for guilty sinners. Grace and mercy and forgiveness the everlasting love of God. There is nothing to compare to the goodness of God which you can find and know for yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ if you will but come to him.